Okay, it's good to see all of you here today. Uh, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We thank you that as we have made our ways through the book of Hebrews, you've really filled our mind with the supremacy of Jesus. And we pray today that you will help us to apply this to our life as we understand this passage that we are looking at. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can you imagine this morning as you came to church, you know, you parked your car or you got off the bus or the MRT or the taxi dropped you off and you're making your way to church and just as you get to the front door, the crew from Channel News Asia or CNN or BBC comes and sticks a microphone right in your face and the cameraman is, you know, pointing his camera right at you and asks you this question, why are you here today? What is your purpose of coming to church today? What is church all about? So imagine you're there, the microphone is in your face, the camera is there, what would you say? Okay, maybe you stall for a second or two, you, <coughs> I'm not sure. What would you say about why we are here today? Now I want you to keep that in mind as we look at today's passage because I think that that speaks uh, today's passage very much to why we are here today. And uh, let's look at it right from the very beginning. There's only a few passages. So let's look at verse 19 to 21, and it says, in verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and it goes on to tell us what we should do. Now verse 19 begins with the statement, Therefore, Okay, now, you never begin a sentence or an original uh, conversation with the word therefore. Because the word therefore is a word which basically is a summary word. It wraps up and concludes all the ideas that have come before. And for most commentators, as we look at this section, uh, this therefore is a really big therefore because it's a major transition from the first part of Hebrews to the second part. Because now it sort of leaves all the teaching sections that we've been sort of focusing on. And the rest of Hebrews is really a lot more about teaching in terms of application, exhortation, and how to live. So this therefore, as you see in uh, verse 19, is like a big vacuum cleaner. Imagine it as a big vacuum cleaner. And it basically sucks up everything from chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to chapter 10 verse 18. It sucks it up like a big vacuum cleaner and it comes out into a nice big, neat little ball and summarizes everything that has come before in chapter 1 verse 1 to 10 verse 18 into really two verses. Okay, so imagine that. It sucks up everything and just brings it into two verses. So therefore, every word, every phrase in verse 19 and verse 20 and verse 21 has a lot of meanings. It's pregnant and full of meaning because it summarizes everything in 10 chapters. So which words are really important? What, what do each, does each word mean when it summarizes chapter 1 to 10? Well, I think the word, if you look at verse 19 to 21, that is of most importance is the word, next slide, have. Okay? The word have. Now you might not think the word have is very important, but actually in the original language, and I know that as a rule, when I was in theological college, they say you should never show foreign languages up on the screen because it confuses people. 
But the word have in verse 19 to 21 is the most important word in this section. Uh, and I'm not just sort of making it up. Now, if you look at your Bible, right, from verse 19 to 25, how many sentences are there? If you look at your Bible, from verse 19 to 25, how many sentences are there in the book of Hebrews? Chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. Now, I don't know which version of the Bible you're using, but you know, you probably have four or five sentences there. But actually, in the original language, verse 19 to 25 is one long sentence. And that sentence be- begins with the word, next slide, have. Okay? And in the, in the, in the, when, you, when we actually uh, study languages in a theological college, they always tell us that uh, in the Greek, uh, many times the, the writer or the author will put the most important word or the word they really want to focus on right at the very beginning, which is the word have. Okay? And that's the word I've highlighted for you. Okay? And the whole point of verse 19 and 21 is to tell us what we have as Christians. Not something that we had as in the past tense, not something that we will have as in the future tense, not something that we might have as in the subjunctive text for you, those of you who are English teachers, right? But it's something that we presently have in our hands right now. So what do we have as Christians? What, what do Christians have? Well, it tells us the first thing we have is, in verse 19, confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, this word here, confidence, is not something like a, a, an emotion, you know, <coughs> a feeling. You know, I might be confident playing golf against Tiger Woods, but that's just a false confidence I have, right? I mean, uh, I might have confidence playing tennis against Rafael Nadal, but again, that's just false confidence. But the confidence that uh, is, is mentioned here in verse 19 is more like the idea of we have the authorization, we have the freedom, we have the permission, we have the entry pass to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as we've seen over the last few weeks, what is the most holy place? Well, if you look at the next slide, uh, we've seen this uh, diagram before. The most holy place was where uh, the presence of God was symbolically meant to be because the Ark of the Covenant was there. Right? So this was the whole of the tabernacle or sanctuary area. This was the holy place where the priests would go. But this is the, the most, holy, most holy place where God was supposed to be symbolically. And we, we knew that from the Old Testament, in the, in the Old Covenant, uh, only the high priest once a year temporarily could come to the most holy place. So therefore, for the general Israelite, for the normal people, they had no confidence to ever enter into the presence of God. But look at what it says there in verse 19, that Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, have full confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And it's not just the earthly tabernacle he's talking about, but the very presence of God himself in heaven. Now, <coughs> I've been to uh, many churches and I remember uh, one church that my friend invited me to. I, I don't know whether you've ever experienced this before. And I went to the church and we, we were all told to stand up to sing like Andrew told us to sing, right? And then we were standing and singing <coughs> for like 15 minutes and then I thought, okay, that's good. Now we can sit down. And then we repeated 
all the songs all over again. And we stood for another half an hour. Until finally, after about an hour, I got really tired. I thought, you know, this is worse than standing and playing golf all day long. Right? We were finally asked to sit down. And I asked my friend, why, why do we stand and sing the same songs three times, four times, five times all over again? Why did the, the, the worship leader tell us to close our eyes and feel the presence of God? Because actually, <coughs> when you look at this passage, we really have the presence of God with us. We can freely, with confidence, with authorization, come into the presence of God. We don't need to sing for one hour to feel the presence of God because we really have the presence of God. And that's what this passage is so much trying to tell us. That we have the objective confidence to come into the most holy place where God is because Jesus has spilt his blood for us. It is something that we already have, not something that we will have or may have, but we have because of the blood of Jesus. Now, if you look at this passage, the blood of Jesus, remember again, looking over the last few chapters, the last few weeks, blood is a very important thing. Blood in the Bible is not a blood transfusion. Blood represents life. Blood means the, 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 the real life force of a person. And that's why if you look at verse 19 and verse 20, they basically parallel one another. So the blood of Jesus is equal to the body of Jesus. Right? If you notice verse 19 and 20, they are parallel. Uh, they say the same things, but they give different imagery to say the same things. So in verse 19 it says, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, in verse 20 it says, by new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. So the blood of Jesus literally means the giving of Jesus' body to enter through the curtain. That curtain that we saw on the next slide. Right? Through this curtain into the most holy place where God literally is. And this is why it is called a new and living way for us. Right, next slide. It's a new and living way because it's a way that never existed before. There was never a way through the curtain to God's most holy place for God's people. Only, only the high priest could go through the curtain, not the people. But through the blood of Jesus, a new way exists for all of God's people, not just the high priest. And it's living because it is a way that was not dead like before, but a way that brings us into the very presence of God where life is. We get eternal life where we have communion with God. Now that's why the death of Jesus on the cross, the shedding of his blood, is such a significant event. Because, <clears throat> if you look at these uh, passages, the moment that Jesus died on the cross, it was recorded in the Gospels that the curtain, that curtain that separates the most holy place and the outer court was torn from top to bottom. Right, so in Matthew chapter 27, it says, And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, and at that moment, the, temple, the, the, sorry, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And again in Mark 15, it says the same thing. And Luke 23, it says the same thing. When Jesus breathed out his last, right, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, this is uh, really important 
because it shows us what we have, right? You know that big word? What we have in Jesus Christ. That the separation between God and man was completely taken away and we now have perfect relationship with God. So if you look up here, right, just think of <coughs> what is being said visually. Next slide. So you know, here are God's people and they're sad. Why are they sad? Because they are separated from God. They cannot enter through that curtain. Uh, that curtain is just, uh, you know, it's not an impossible barrier to pass, but it symbolically stops people from going into the presence of God. But the next slide, see now they're happy people, right? They're happy, right? Because Jesus gave his body or his blood, symbolically his life, which opens up the way that people can go into the presence of God. And, next slide. It says there in verse 21, okay, so remember it says there, right at the very beginning, we have confidence to enter the most, present, most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And in verse 21, and we have a great priest over the house of God. So if you see here, Jesus doesn't remain on the cross, but Jesus gets off the cross, he's resurrected, he is exalted to heaven where he now is our high priest. Now, I know that if you see people, you know sometimes you see people wearing crosses on their chains, and sometimes, especially for Catholics, you see that there is a figure hung on the cross, right? Jesus is still on the cross. See, now that's not theologically right, because Jesus no longer is on the cross. Jesus has come off the cross, he has gone through the grave, he has resurrected, he has gone and exalted and now he's in heaven as our high priest. So, if you ever want to wear a cross, don't wear a cross with Jesus on it. You can wear a cross, but don't have the body there because Jesus is no longer on the cross. Alright, so, Jesus has actually done two things. If you look in this passage, he has opened the way for his people to go to God, but at the same time he has risen and he is our high priest. And that's why we have this great confidence because Jesus has done it all for us and therefore we can have a perfect relationship with God. Now I remember when my mother-in-law was still alive in Saramban in Malaysia, we used to go up to Malaysia very often to visit her and my father-in-law. And often when we would go there, we tried to share the good news of Jesus with her. And this went on for year after year after year. Until one day, we finally recognized that she understood what the gospel of Jesus Christ was about. And that day was when she said to us, Wow, so easy. Jesus has done everything for me. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. When you recognize that actually you don't do anything, but you have everything because Jesus has done everything for you. And that's what Jesus has done, isn't it? As we see here, He is the one who gave His blood and died and allowed us to go through. He is the one in heaven who is interceding for us today. See, Christianity is not about working our way up to heaven. Christianity is actually God bringing heaven to us by his death. Now, since we have all these things, right, since we already have in our possession a, a, a real relationship with God, then what should we do? What is the purpose of our Christian life? Right? What, is, what is the things that we have to work on? Well, if you look at this passage, the idea that's most important is we must hold on to Jesus. Because it is only through Jesus 
that we have a real relationship with the Father in Heaven. That's why I suppose if you look at your subtitle, I don't know, my, my subtitle says a call to persevere. Right? And some other subtitles in your Bibles might say to remain in Jesus. Because if we only have these things in Jesus, then we must never let go of Jesus. So what's the first thing that we are told to do, that we are exhorted to do? Well, in verse 22 it says, Since we have all these things in Jesus, what must we do? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies, and having our bodies washed with pure water. So what should we do if we have Jesus open the way for us and as our high priest? We must seize the opportunity to draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance. Now, I think for a Jewish Christian, the, the Hebrew Christians who first read the Jewish Christians who first read uh, this uh, letter, they, they, they would be very unfamiliar with this idea because God would seem very distant, isn't it? I mean, they could never enter into the holy place. They could never enter into the most holy place. There was a curtain dividing God and them. But what he's saying is now that we have the ability to, to have God unrestricted with no barriers, we should seize it with two hands. The door to God is always open and we must always draw near to Him. We must pray to Him, read to His Word, worship Him in our words and our deeds, be united with Him. You know, the, the Jews could never pray the Lord's Prayer like we pray today. We could never pray, you know how we pray, Our Father in Heaven. Our Father in Heaven. That's a very intimate way of speaking to God. The Jews would never pray to God that way. If you look at the Psalms, they never say, Our Father in Heaven. But we are able to say our Father in heaven because at the end of our prayer, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So through Jesus Christ, we have a, an intimate relationship with God. But, but, but do we draw near to God and take full, opportunity, full use of the opportunity given to us? Because the opposite of drawing near to God with a sincere heart, right? That, that word there is really important, with a sincere heart, is to actually move away from God with a hardened, sinful and unbelieving heart. Because I think there is a contrast here with what happens in chapter 2 verse 12 where the writer of Hebrews compares Christians today with the people in Exodus. So in chapter 3 verse 12, he said, God said to the writer of Hebrews, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it, calls, it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, there is a choice, isn't it? Jesus has opened the way for us. Jesus is our high priest interceding for us. But we can choose to draw near to God or we can choose to turn away from God. See, there, there, is a, there is a movement. So you can draw near to God or you can turn and walk away from God. Now I wonder in your own life, how would you characterize 
your Christian life today? Are you drawing near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, or are you turning away from God with a sinful and unbelieving heart, a deceitful heart? I had a very good friend of mine. Actually, I shouldn't say I had, right? All these tenses are confusing me. I have a very good friend from a very long time ago who is a Christian, went to uh, university me went to Bible study for many years. And unfortunately, there was a sin in his life which uh, he was unconfessed. And as a result, more and more, even though he was a Christian, in all senses of the word, he, you could see that his life was characterized by moving further and further and further away from God. Because he loved that sin more than God. It can be anything, isn't it? Uh, It could be the busyness of work and life, or it could be the deceitfulness of pleasure, or chasing uh, after some other thing. But instead of drawing near to God with a sincere heart, we can choose to drift away from God and to turn away from Him. I remember this quote I, I, for my daily Bible reading. It gives, us, it gives me a quote every day. And this quote came last week by somebody I never heard before. Next slide. And he said a very profound thing. No one loses God, but he that is willing to part with him. That's very profound. That no one loses God, except he, or but he, that is willing to part with him. You see, the door is open for us as Christians. We have Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. But the choice that we have is do we keep drawing near to God in everything that we do or do we choose to turn away from Him because of a sinful, unbelieving and a deceitful heart. The next thing we're supposed to do is in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Uh, now the picture here is of holding on really tightly. Holding on without letting go. Holding on so that your grip never loosens. So never loosen, it says. Grip without loosening uh, onto that hope that we have because God is faithful in His promises. Now once again, uh, we, we, we've seen that the Hebrew Christians to whom the, this letter is addressed to were facing a great temptation to loosen their grip on the hope that they had because there was great persecution from the Roman authorities. Uh, just as we pray today for those Christians in Korea, North Korea, they were facing imprisonment, loss of property, loss of jobs, uh, even death. Uh, there, there was a, a great temptation to go back to Judaism because Judaism was a recognized religion under the Roman Empire, and they wouldn't face persecution and they would go back to having the approval of their Jewish relatives and their friends. So there was a great temptation to, to not hold on un- unswervingly, unwaveringly, but to actually loosen their grip on the hope that they had. Now, given that all that was happening around them, the persecution, the pressure from their, their own countrymen, What was the answer to holding on unswervingly? 
it was to focus on God whose promise was faithful. Sorry, my tense is wrong. Is faithful, right? God whose promise is faithful. Right, because you can look around you and there's so many things which will discourage you and tempt you to loosen your hold on the hope that we have. But we must focus on God and God's character because we know God is a faithful God and God keeps His promises. See, if I say to you, okay, uh, I'll meet you uh, for lunch after church at, uh, you know, 2 o'clock at, at say, Sake Sushi in, in, in Heartland Mall, and you wait there and I'm not there, a few things might happen, isn't it? It might be because I'm just a very unreliable person, I just forgot and I never turned up. Or God, it could be that, you know, I, I, I wanted to come, but I was unable to come for one reason or another. But God is not like that, you see. God is not unreliable. And God is not someone who lets circumstances stop him from doing things. He's a sovereign, powerful, almighty, omnipotent God. So when God says that he will do something, he will do it. And we should focus on his promises and not the day-to-day disappointments that plague us and make us feel that we need to loosen our hope, our grip on the hope that we have. Now last week uh, I had a good holiday. I went to... Taiwan just for a little while and I met up with uh, some missionary friends I know there and they introduced me to this uh, Swiss woman from Switzerland and she'd been a missionary in Taiwan for 35 years. That's a really long time, right? 35 years. And her work uh, was working with young juvenile delinquents. Okay? Uh, Not just no, like normal delinquents, but criminals, okay, drug addicts. And for 35 years, she was sharing how she hadn't seen that much fruit. And all around her, really, to me, from my just short experience having dinner with her and the other missionaries, was disappointment. She was having trouble with the, getting partnership with the Taiwanese churches to partner with her in her work. Uh, the young people that she was doing ministry to were not very receptive. They would give her wrong phone numbers so that she would call and they'd be wrong. Uh, they would say that they would, they would meet her and they wouldn't. Uh, they would give her the address or phone number of the families they come from. And then when she, you know, she calls up, they pretend they're not there. And she was telling me even in the home country of Switzerland, uh, the, the society in Switzerland was becoming very, very antagonistic towards Christians and the church. And even Christian friends in the home country were sort of saying, you know, why, why do you want to stay in Taiwan when there were no fruits and there were no results? And the whole environment, you can imagine, right, from the people, the church in Taiwan, from the church in Switzerland to the society and the friends, everything was sort of saying to her, you should just give up this really foolish endeavor and go back to Switzerland. But she still keeps going on, year after year. And why is that? Because her focus is not on her environment, but her focus is on God, and the purposes of God, and the promises of God. That God is working through her in His own way, in order to bring the Gospel to the world. So I wonder about you. How is your hold on the hope that you have, on the hope that you have in Jesus? Is it tight? Is it firm? Is it, like it says there, unwavering, unswerving? 
Or over time, have you loosened it? Have you loosened it? Because you're influenced by the things around you. The environment that you have, the people around you, the things that you see, the things that you're attracted to. Or do you focus on God and His promises? Because that's the only way that you ever hold on tightly to the hope that you have, isn't it? What's the third thing? Well, the third and last thing is in verse 24 to 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the first thing we have to note here in verse 24 is that this is not an encouragement to good works, right? People might say, okay, let's spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So it's all about just morality and good works. And unfortunately, uh, some churches actually believe that that's the whole purpose of church. Uh, like uh, my friend in Australia who was telling me that his church is all about social work. I always, you know, it, it sort of doesn't focus us on Jesus, but it's all about helping uh, you know, in social work. It's all about social work. It's not about social work because spurring one another on towards love and good deeds comes in the context, in verse 25, of the day that is approaching. Can you see that? Verse uh, 25, at the end, all the more as you see the day approaching with the capital D. Okay, now what day is this? Okay, now this day is the day when Jesus comes again. And we've seen that, okay? So in chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And then again, straight after this verse, in verse 26, it says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. See, on this day when Jesus comes again, it will either be a great, joyous, wonderful day where we will receive salvation because we are waiting for Him, or it will be a terrible, terrible, terrible day where those who have sinful and unbelieving hearts will face judgment and raging fire. So, in the light of that day, what are we to do? We are to keep encouraging one another to be strong in our faith. We have a responsibility to one another to help each other draw near to God and to hold on to our hope. So, you know, hopefully when the Channel News Asia, the BBC reporter, puts the microphone in your face and asks you, what are you doing here today? What are you doing in church today? Well, you should answer, I'm here to encourage other Christians in their Christian world. I'm here to help one another draw near to God. I'm here to help one another hold on to the hope that they have in Christ. Because that's what it says there, isn't it? Let us not give up meeting one another, but let us come together, spurring on towards love and good deeds and encouraging one another. Are you encouraging someone else in their Christian walk? And how are you encouraging them? See, when, when you look at the people around us, 
when you look at the people to your left, to your right, in front of you, behind you, they are not acquaintances that you sit with in a lecture theatre, you know, when you are at university, you just sit, you know. Neither are they strangers in some dark cinema hall when you go and watch some movie, right? And neither are they colleagues that, uh, you know, may resign next week. But if you look at this passage, who are they? Well, well, verse 19, it says they are brothers and sisters in Christ, isn't it? It says there in verse 21, they are the house of God. In fact, they are those who are bought by the precious blood of Jesus. So therefore, we have a responsibility to each other to make sure that we encourage each other in our faith. Now, I want you to look very closely at uh, verse 21, right? It says, we should not give up meeting together. Now, actually, this word, giving up, I think it's a very weak word. You know, giving up, it's like, oh, well, okay, no big deal, you just give up, right? But the word literally is, I'm not sure what it says in the ESV, but in, in, the, in other, some other translations, I think in the NASB and everything, it's, it's the word forsake. Uh, that's the word that's actually being used here, the word forsake. The word, it literally means abandon. Okay? And, and the reason is because the majority of time, this word that's used here is the idea of abandoning or forsaking or giving up something. It's a really strong word. It's like uh, you have a pet and you abandon your pet. Or you forsake your family member. Or you desert your army unit. Or you disown uh, someone. That's the idea that is being expressed here. See, the, the same word, if you look up here on the slide, is, is used really powerfully to describe how God's people forsook Him. And how even God forsook Jesus on the cross because he was bearing the sins of the whole world. Right, look at what it says there in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to a sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking Him. And in Mark chapter 15, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama saktani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So actually, that's exactly the same word that is being used here in verse 25. Do not forsake meeting up one another. Do not abandon one another. Do not give up on one another. Because it actually recognizes that as Christians, we, we, have, a, we have a responsibility to one another. A responsibility to make sure that we keep each other growing in Christ Till the day comes. So when we stop meeting together, when you choose to sleep in because you know you watch EPL or you're just too tired or for whatever reason, and you choose to come and not encourage because you know you come and you just want to go home quickly, then you are actually forsaking one another. You are abandoning each other, and that's not the way that God has made us to be as His people because. We are brothers and sisters. We are the house of God. We are all bought by the blood of Jesus. So in conclusion, my mother-in-law was right when she said that actually, it all seems so easy, isn't it? Jesus has done everything for us. We have a relationship with God because Jesus has done 
it all. He has died for us on the cross and He is in heaven right now interceding for us. But like one pastor said, it is easy right, to accept, but hard to remain. And I think it is hard to remain in many instances as a Christian, as a strong, growing Christian. Because there are so many things which are so attractive to us. There are so many things which are so, I guess, destructive to our faith that we draw away from God and we have these sinful, unbelieving hearts that instead of drawing to God, we draw further and further away from Him. And instead of holding on to the hope we have, we loosen our grip. And instead of coming and encouraging one another, we, 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 we abandon one another. It is said like our faith is like a fire, right? Our, fire, our faith is like a fire, and like any fire, it needs to be well tended. So, you know, for any of you who have ever tried to have a barbecue or anything uh, combustible, it actually takes a while to get the fire going, but once it gets going, you actually need to look after it. If not, the fire will go out. You need to keep fanning the flames. You need to keep adding charcoal. You need to keep the wood together so that they all don't become spread out and the flame dies. But I think that for many of us, as we look at this passage, the danger is very real. We do not tend to the fire of our faith. We neglect our faith. We do not add more wood or charcoal. We do not fan it into full flame. We, we, we let all the wood get spread out. Until over time, the flame of our faith becomes lower and lower and eventually dies. I remember someone once said, God only warns us because the danger must be very real among His people. And I think that even for the Hebrew Christians, it was real. So for us, it's very real too. We may not face the persecution of the Roman authorities. We may not be Jews who want to go back to Judaism. But each and every one of us knows of people who have fallen away. And even ourselves, if we're honest, we may be in danger of falling away. So let us keep drawing near to God with a sincere heart with full assurance of faith. Let us hold on unswervingly to the hope that we have because God is a faithful God. And let us keep coming together and encouraging one another to keep growing strong to the day when Jesus returns. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you that we have it all in Jesus Christ, your Son, that He came and He gave His blood, His life, His body on the cross so that the curtain between you and ourselves may be broken once and for all, where we have free access to you because our sins have been paid for. And dear Father, we thank you that He is no longer on the cross, that He died and rose again and is now in heaven by your side, interceding for us. We pray that having all these treasures, that we will always hold on to Jesus. That we will draw near to you in our minds and our hearts and our wills and our souls with a sincere heart, with a faith full of assurance. And dear Father, that we hold on unswervingly to the hope that we have, focusing on your promises 
and not on the pleasures and problems that we face in this world. And last of all, we pray that for all of us that we will come to church, that we will come to our groups, that we will come in fellowship in order to encourage one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the house of God. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.